did you see, um, what's the guy's name? Paul Thrott, isn't he the Windows guy? I don't think I heard of this. Um, hang on, let me find this. Super site window. Oh, yeah. So he says, what the heck is the title? Is, what the heck is happening to Windows? Is it better to burn out than fade away? Um, but it's about 8.1. I have and, heard of issues with 8.1. And what I think, um, I think there's a recent article, like like one of those heard from a person from a person because it was about Gates trying to install Windows 8.1 and couldn't get it installed. Ended up like pissed off and giving up on it and going back to Windows 7. You know, I haven't, I haven't had no use for Windows since XP. It just, it's, I don't know. It's not great. Well, it's probably fun to hate on Windows. I remember when XP came out, I hated it. I hated the UI. I went, I, I turned it back to Windows 2000 UI look and feel. I mean, everything else was fine, but the the look and feel of it, I didn't like. And then eventually it grew on me and it was fine. And, and then it became my standard. Um, But yeah, I didn't, around that time I transitioned off into Mac. So then I stopped caring. And then when Vista came out, that UI, which as far as I can tell, it's this, well, I know Windows 8 has the new UI, but like Vista and 7, that, glass smoked glass look i think it's so gaudy it just it looks like it's so bad i'm surprised that's not a joke (laughs) i didn't mind it as much i thought it i thought it was great when everything was perfect but there were cases where if you had a horrible background or certain colors or something would kind of wash it out and you wouldn't be able to read anything in there it just it happens but i don't know i don't mind it too much so anyway, um, this guy says Paul. Yeah, it, it was Paul Thorat, by the way. He does um, the he does a window show for the Twit Network, um, but he's I think he's really well known. He runs the WinSuperSite dot com. He says um, with update one, which I guess is eight point one, I'm beginning to question the validity of the new direction. I'm now wondering whether Microsoft has simply fallen into an all too familiar trap of trying to please everyone and creating a product that is ultimately not ideal for anyone. But um, he, he talked about how. Well, hold on. Ha- how, how is that pleasing everyone? I mean, windows eight doesn't please anybody from what I understand. Well, that's what happens when you try to please everyone. You please no one. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, so he was, they were talking about, Oh, it was say they hired um, this guy, Steven Sanofsky. Uh, was he from Apple? Where did he come from? Anyway, um, to, they, they hired him supposedly to reimagine windows um, and you know, so he says, here's a, finally a guy who could push through a Steve Jobs style, singular product vision. But they, before that, I t- talked about how, um, you know, Steve Jobs was belligerent and one-sided and he didn't w- work well with others and no qualms about tossing out features and technologies that, you know, whatever, um, no respect for customer feedback. Anyway, you know, so they're saying Steve Sanofsky did, did that. And sadly the result was windows eight. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So uh, he said it's not well designed. It's a mess. But Windows 8 has a bigger problem than that. Windows 8 is a disaster in every sense of the word. Peer, uh, he says, uh, um, this is not open to debate. It's not part of some cute imaginary world where everyone's opinion is equally valid or whatever. Windows 8 is a disaster, period. Um, is he, does he get into specifics about, is it the UI itself, the whole tabbed interface, or or what is he talking about? I'm sorry, um, the tile interface. I, he didn't really talk a whole lot about that. Um, uh, let's see. 
So it gets in an update one. The problem with update one isn't in any single small function addition. Um, it's in the strategic direction that this update implies. You know, he says Windows 8.1 was an apology, a way for Windows to fix as much as possible in a year, make the metro, metro environment more hospitable to, um, to tablet users, and make the desktop more hospitable to traditional PC users. In that sense, Windows 8.1 is successful. Um, it doesn't do a thing to address the fact that Windows isn't a single OS. It's two of them, mobile and desktop, fused together unnaturally like a Frankenstein's monster. So what did Update 1 add to the mix? It's a return to the age-old issue where Windows simply grew spaghetti-like to accommodate every silly possible need of the system's too diverse user group. So that's basically what it's just saying is that they've just tried to, you know, accommodate every different type of user, every you know, everyone out there. Um, but he said it's just a mess. Well, I think the, the bigger issue is that they tried to accommodate. They tried to accommodate mobile and desktop in one interface, and I, I think that was the big, the wrong move. I don't necessarily think those two worlds can collide until one wins out completely over the other. Yeah, and I just watched this from afar because I, I just, I, I have a Windows Seven VM that I use when I absolutely have to do something with like SQL server, but other, and I, I don't know if I've touched that in six months. So I'm just not, I'm just really not a windows user at all. Um, but I am, I, I still use it. I still run it in VMware and I still use it consistently since I, I enjoy writing windows programs still. And I still get enough business doing that with custom integrations and things like that. But so I'm, I'm going to start sending all my windows <laughs> integrations and .NET and SQL Server work to you. That, that's fine. I send you all my Java stuff. <laughs> I, I can't get into Java. I'm sorry. I tried. I, I know you say I need to go to this. Um, where are you going? You're going in February to uh, Java Posse. Oh, the roundup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying you should go. You have to decide that for yourself. I think you get a lot out of it because only a small percentage of the sessions are specifically about Java technology or, or to, or to a degree that you'd just be completely lost. You know, there's most of it's about, you know, cloud technologies and process and, you know, all kinds of different, you know, NoSQL databases, whatever. Yeah. I think I like conferences where the technology itself brings people together, but it's not the entire focus. You know, the entire focus is, kind of developers interacting and talking about how they do things and best practices and things they've learned. I think those I find valuable, mm-hmm. but yeah, so I still use windows. I still, I don't mind it as much. It takes, takes some getting used to the whole tile interface, but I pretty much only use the tile, the start screen as that, like a dashboard style stop screen or start screen. I use everything else in the window format, meaning I go into the desktop and run my apps there. Yeah. And I think most people do. I don't think anybody likes the full screen interfaces for their desktop. Well, and apparently, I don't know if it's with this up. Is, so is 8.1, is that the same thing of update one or is update one a separate thing? And- I'm confused by it because I, I thought there was an 8.1 that added the start screen and everything back, but I think there's another update coming. Like it may be like service pack one or something that addresses a lot of other issues as well. Yeah. And I think you're right. Cause I, I had bookmarked another article that talked about how it said, you know, Microsoft is backing off on Metro. So it's now no longer the default UI. Oh yeah. That probably means whenever you hit the start button, you'll get your start button, but you can either 
have that go into the tiled interface. I don't know. It also says that Windows 8's sales have dropped below Vista's abysmal sales adoption numbers. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, every company out there that's planning to do an upgrade because XP is, you know, not going to be supported anymore um, is moving to Windows 7. They're not going to 8. Now, another thing we didn't talk about, because um, it just happened. No, I'm sorry. Did we talk about the new CEO, Microsoft? Not that I know anything about him. Uh, Satya Nadella, I guess. We did, but what happened? Oh, that's right. They what in happened? The, in, the, in, the, in the lost episode. <laughs> we have a lost episode that only has like my recording. <laughs> Um, but apparently I saw this today. I'm sure it's, maybe it's in the news or something. Um, there's a, there's a, I think it's a rumor that there's going to be pressure from investors for Microsoft to drop, uh, like three major divisions. One of them was Xbox. No. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. Xbox is doing great. It's, it's <laughs> profitable. It's doing great. Is it profitable? Even with that red ring of death, it costs them billions of dollars. Even with that, I mean, they made up the market share. They're, they were the top um, console, 360 was, and one is not doing too bad. I mean, it's it's a few million shy in sales from um, PlayStation 4, but I think they'll make up for it. Yeah. I mean, I don't like their, I don't like the new Xbox. I mean, not not to get too much into gaming, because I know you're not into gaming, but I don't really like the new Xbox and, you know, the Kinect coming with it and the always-on features and the fact that it's not a gaming console. They're trying to make it a media console. You know, I want a console that's for playing games, not for doing all this other crap. But I guess well, if it, if you don't have an Apple TV or always on internet or something, I don't know. And I think maybe they were talking about spinning off, not killing them maybe, but just spinning them off as other companies. Um, yeah, so it was Xbox. Bing was the other one. I don't remember the third one, but just spinning them off as separate companies. Yeah, the, I think that kind of talk has been around for a while. I've always heard of them. Well, this is Someone this recommending is that yeah. they split things off. So, I don't know. Again, it's hard for me to I don't care. know what value that has to split off, split these off like that. Well, if the value would be if Microsoft is going in way, just this octopus with tentacles everywhere going in way too many directions and not doing anything very well, particularly its core businesses, then maybe should, they should, you know, again, just maybe sell a couple off and focus, really focus on Windows, getting Windows better, focus on mobile and cloud. They have a lot of opportunities with Azure. I, um, I think Azure is considered a an up and coming, you know, significant player in the cloud space. So, and even for non Windows apps, what I'd really like to see them do is stop nickeling, diming developer tools. Well, that's how they make money, man. I guess they are a software company. Okay, Although I'm tools. sure there's plenty of people who want them who'd rather them be more of a hardware company, building their own tablets and things like that. But that yeah. that causes other issues in their supply chain. I think you get what you pay for. I mean, like take Eclipse versus IntelliJ. I mean, I pay for IntelliJ. What is it? 500 bucks for, for a license. Um, I use for a data tool. I use, um, was it Aqua data studio? I think that helps me with like migrations and stuff. And that's 500 bucks. Yeah. I just, I just really hate this multi-tiered model they have with their developer tools. It's just a huge, 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 huge hill to get over just to get into this, to the, ecosystem well, that's, that's annoying because they 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 you feel like they're because they have those tiers yeah they you feel like you're like well i kind of need that next tier and then like well there's one piece i need in that third tier and you feel like they're really putting the squeeze on you it's like yeah, they know they like. know that you're going to need at least one or two things from each tier so they're just they're pushing you up the mountain there and yeah 
that's kind of where the frustration comes in. Not to mention, you and know, then that they keep changing those tiers every year, and there's either some new tier or some new thing, and they've kind of kind of gotten away from upgrade pricing. So now you're pretty much out of pocket, full force for everything because they want you to be an MSDN subscriber. Yeah, and I don't want to spend two thousand dollars a year. Yep, I don't need everything and everything that Microsoft ever built. Yeah. And, you know, obviously you can pick whatever database you want, but I mean, if you are all about the Microsoft ecosystem, then, you know, you've got SQL server, which has gotten to be really expensive. Yeah. And I have, I have such a tremendous skill set in that area. I think that I, it's hard for me to start using other databases because when I need to work with a database or, you know, do some, some things with like say T SQL or something, I'm so efficient in that SQL that that's where I want to be. So it kind of sucks that the tooling and the pricing isn't there. But you're not running production SQL server, so you don't have any costs there yourself, right? No. I mean, I, I usually end up getting like a developer edition of it, which re- removes the limits that they have on, say, the, I guess, test one or I don't know right. what the express version. Yeah. Um, and that usually helps. So, but that usually means ordering a separate CD. They traditionally haven't made those downloadable, but I think they're starting to. Um, the other thing I hate about it, and I know this is getting a little bit long, but whenever you install something on windows, so much crap gets installed. I'm not talking about all this freeware crap that you get when you buy a PC. I'm talking about like you install SQL and you get like a hundred different utility programs installed along with it and you can't clean it all up. You can't hope to, but when you upgrade or remove something, trying to clean it up, you end up breaking the the system. It's that way with visual studio. It's that way with SQL. It's that way with office. Yeah, that's just Microsoft's philosophy. Just drowned you with their icons in the start menu. Well, they have so much shared libraries, shared code, shared utilities across it that you think would make things better, but they don't. It just makes everything worse. I'd rather have these applications be self-contained, their own little thing. Yeah, maybe the file size is a little bit bigger, but I'm not too worried about file size anymore. Um, So JavaScript was in the news. Um, ThoughtWorks. I guess they, so they have their, what is it? What do they have their technology radar or whatever it's called? They do where they basically just rank different technologies in terms of whether like, whether you should be, you know, keeping an eye on it or whether you should like, it's ready to be adopted. It's mature enough. And they, I guess they moved Node.js to adopt. Um, and I think that kicked off some, some news coverage, but what do you think about this? You know, JavaScript, it's just, it's like everywhere now. I think it's interesting. I think it's, I like JavaScript. I've gotten pretty proficient in it and I don't know. My blog is running on it. I mean, that's ghost is running on Node.js. Yeah. And a lot of Node.js is still an absolute mess though. I, I actually don't think it's, yeah, you know, this well, is I mean, gonna... most of, most of the things people are using today, startups and things, they're all using kind of these really young technologies that they've kind of hung their hat on or grown to love and are trying to do things. And so the toolkits are growing, you know, the frameworks are growing it's exciting in that area and you're not, you're not having to pay for all these expensive tools that some of these more mature platforms have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, this thing is saying, it's you know, the, it's the, it's it's the, the proliferation of, of uh, yeah, of uh, open source tools and libraries, I guess that uh, is making Node.js more powerful. I don't know. It's really, that's kind of what kickstarted Java, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. I think it's just, just a cycle. I mean, these tools come out, they're young, people start developing frameworks and tools to cover gaps in the, in the software or, or in the language. And then those tools become, they become IP. They become ways that those people make money. And so those tools keep growing and adding more features and their cost keeps going up. And then so 
people get turned away by that and start going for the new younger technologies. It's just a shame that there are so many uh, weird quirks to JavaScript that make it in some ways such a terrible language. Have you seen any, like any of these things where they just like demonstrations of just absolutely stupid behavior Java has. Like a lot of it's all about comparisons and like type conversions and things. It's, it's just, it's insane. And they're so baked into the language that you, unless you, I mean, you can't really change it because you know, browsers, every browser out there supports JavaScript. You can't, you can't change the fundamental behavior of those types of basic things. It's a shame because, but you know, it was a, it was a language that somebody put together, you know, in the matter of a couple of weeks that, you know, no one had any idea that it would become remotely as popular as what it has. Yeah. I remember, remember the, I guess the hype slash controversy around it when people said they were going to run websites and servers on, on JavaScript. And I, I remember those, I, I remember kind of just leaning back and saying, I, I think I'll see how it goes. It seems interesting. Um, but I think the fact that it stayed around and a lot, a lot of sites are using it and people are making a go at it. I think it's, I think it's going to be around for a while. I mean, there's still a lot of investment in JavaScript right now. Oh yeah. It's, it's, de- it's not going anywhere. I mean, it, it, I think it's, it's definitely still on the uptrend and uh, with, with I mean, the rise of not only like Node.js on the server, which obviously helps it a lot, but also these like single page app, you know, HTML slash JavaScript frameworks that are, um, that are really getting popular, you know, angular, those types of things. Um, that's just really driving a lot more JavaScript as well. Yeah. And I guess Chrome tried to, I'm sorry, Google put a competitor JavaScript in Chrome. I forgot what that language was. It's basically oh, similar dart. Yeah, it was dart. Yeah. And I haven't heard much about dart. In fact, I'm not even sure if it's still around. It might be. It is. I don't, Yeah, you know, it doesn't seem like it's got a ton of trans traction. But. Yeah, I mean, it, they basically made it to where it would compile to JavaScript as kind of a way to transition, but I don't think anyone's kind of hung their hat on it and started actually building real-world stuff on it. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think there's there's room in the market for something to come in and replace JavaScript? Do you think it, it'll be it for a while? I don't think – it definitely is going to be it for a while. I think there's room. I mean, that the the again, the problem is, is that there have been some – pretty good alternatives to JavaScript proposed dart type, you know, TypeScript. Um, but the problem is, is that every browser in the world supports JavaScript. And I don't know how you fix that. Well, I mean, as browsers are now becoming auto updatable and that's becoming the norm, I think there's a better chance for something to come in. But it's like that curse of the web. There's so many old browsers and everyone's scared to support, you know, the browsers that were, or they're scared not to support any browser that was made in the past five years. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, the auto updating browsers help that. I mean, if you have someone that's using Chrome or Firefox, they're pretty much up to date because it just auto updates. Yeah. And hopefully I've seen some changes, but not a lot, but hopefully enterprises getting on board and starting to allow auto updating browsers and not having so many dependencies on, on versioned software, which is also another big issue. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, you have any Salesforce stuff? Not really. I mean, the only thing I kind of piqued my interest was um, Heroku's new kind of performance dinos, they're calling them. I guess they're Heroku XL, extra large. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. 
So I guess they're just kind of beefing up some of the dinos. So they're giving you another option out there to, to kind of get some higher performing dinos, so to speak. Yeah. Cause I don't think, and I don't, I don't use Heroku anymore. I used a couple, one, two years ago, um, did a decent sized project. Um, but I think all the, there was only one dino size. I think, you know, you could, you could scale up, you could add dinos and, you know, kind of scale out right horizontally, but you, you didn't, you didn't scale up by server size. So is this, so you, now you have the option of a normal dino or a, one of these enhanced ones, I guess. Yeah. So they're calling them like one X dinos, which is the previous version. And those came with five twelve megs of, of Ram. And then you have, I guess like one to four times squared, whatever compute power. Um, and then that came at a certain price. And then the new performance di- dinos give you about six gigs of, of, of memory and 40 times. So I guess eight CPU cores you can, you can max out. Um, it's a significant price difference though for like oh, the yeah. one time dyno. It's like five cents an hour for the performance. It's 80 cents. Mm. Five cents is cheap. Wow. Yeah. Um, this one of the, one of the items from the uh, long lost episode, but this, this question I had of is, uh, is database com dead? Yeah, I haven't heard much about it. I mean, I remember when it came out, I actually got to participate in a kind of survey type thing about with database.com before they announced it. Um, but I don't think anyone's actually built anything or if they have, it's, it's not gained enough traction. I mean, it's still there and I guess you can still sign up for it. You can create new accounts. I'm not sure, but I just, you know, I looked at their, I looked at the site, I looked at the blog. They haven't, they didn't, the blog on database.com hasn't been updated since like 2012. And then, so I was scouring the web looking for, what I was looking for is like, I want testimonials. Like I want to see examples of people using database.com for real apps. And so I searched through hacker news, very little, like no examples. I mean, only pretty much negative, negative type stuff. Um, and then I searched the web. I did like a Google news search and then I did a, a, like a date limited search for just things in the past year. And I only found like two or three posts and they were, you know, one of them was three reasons to avoid salesforce.com or database.com for your mobile backend, which was interesting actually. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there's another one that was Ruby on rails three with Salesforce conclusion. Uh, don't do it. If you even think about doing it, you're nuts. Um, I mean, we don't really have to go into. Well, interestingly, I went to database.com, which used to be the URL, and that forwards you to their services page, which now lists all their services as kind of bundled under the their one Salesforce, one platform marketing. Oh, it, d- dude, this just happened. Wow. And it, yeah, and it became cloud database. Um, so oh, so I is? guess it's still there. No, it's And it's dead. still an option. Yeah. It's there as cloud database. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which that might be a better home for it versus just a standalone application. It might find a better home being supporting mobile technologies. Just, again, I mean, Salesforce is good. If you're using their CRM and you, you need to do some customizations, it's, it's good for that. But I mean, honestly, if you're going to, if you're building a mobile app or just some web app, I mean, no one, no one in their right mind, no one in the world is going to pick database.com for their back end. Just not happening. That's why it's being demoted. I don't know about and, that. I think I think no, it has. Find, its, find me an example. I, well, no, it's now. I think the argument against database.com is more than likely pricing more than anything. No one wants to pay that much for no, a database, the even though it I gives, saw had nothing to do with pricing. I mean, yeah, you lose a lot of features. You're kind of further removed from the database. There's a lot of things you can't do. 
But I, I mean, think there's, there's ultimately, no there, do it. I think there are people out there who probably would do it, but pricing gets in the way. Okay. Well, I mean, like I said, the post I've found on why you shouldn't do it had nothing to do with price, but. I'm not talking about hardcore developers that know how to do stuff. I'm talking about guys out there with an application ID that are trying to get something up and running quick and are trying to kit together some technologies to help them do that. But even for that, I mean, there's like, if you're doing a mobile app and you need a backend, I mean, there's other, there's other, all these other backend as a service, you know, services that seem to be getting quite a bit of traction. And like I said, I just, I don't know, you don't see anything with database.com. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I just, I just searched, I was just searching around looking for, I was looking for examples of people using it. I just couldn't find anything. And of course on database.com's website, which doesn't exist anymore, they didn't list any, they had no like, um, testimonials or success stories. So I was just searching on my own and there was nothing out there. <coughs> anyway, well, there's my answer. It's dead. <laughs> <laughs> it morphed. It grew up. It became something else. It didn't die, die. Yeah. Well, it um, was never officially reborn. I mean, it's still pretty much the Salesforce database system in the back end. I mean, it's the same thing that CRM uses. It had some additional management features built on top of it and things you can do to manage your indexes and all that kind of stuff. But overall, it's still the same, same technology. I know you haven't been able to avoid the fact that Salesforce released a .NET toolkit because it got retweeted 8 billion times by the Salesforce clan and they got a ton of crappy butt press from it. Um, what's funny? What's f- so? And I, the whole time I'm thinking, okay, what's what's new about this? I mean, it's REST, it's SOAP, there's Wizzles, .NET's always supported it. I mean, I used to do a lot of .NET apps that that use Salesforce's API, but apparently, what it is is there's some um, like new Git packages that you can yeah, install so, directly in. Yeah. yeah, so there's native libraries, so that they're like giving you DLLs and stuff that. So it's kind of funny because so if you don't know how to do web services and you don't know what a whistle is or, you know, whatever, then just install this thing and you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. But what's funny is it says, um, <laughs> this article says, with these toolkits, it's now incredibly easy for .NET developers to use the a- to use APIs using the skills and tools they're already familiar with. But actually, no, it, this is letting them not use skills that they don't have by just installing this package and, <laughs> and then coding. How is this necessary though? It's an, it's an API integration. Why do I need bin- why why do we need binaries? I don't know. I I mean I've been I've been I'm, developing I'm, stuff with Salesforce with .net for years, for I years. It, yeah. I literally think it's years. for years. <laughs> <like> that point. <laughs> it's for uh people who don't know what they're doing. And that's funny they say that. It's for people it's for you it's so that you don't have to use skills that you don't have. Well, I mean, this might go back to to your your theory about Salesforce, and that's where the VB developers went because that's VB is kind of such an entry level language that so many people were able to to learn and use given a low skill set. And yeah. I, I think they're catering to that as exactly. well. With don't worry about header files and pointers. We'll take care of all that for you. Just come use this thing called VB. <laughs> well, there's similar arguments still being made about other things too, not just. Salesforce, but even jQuery is becoming a crutch and, and people are starting to, to argue whether or not you need to use jQuery since more, more and more browsers are starting to support 
all of the features that you need. And so you may not need to use jQuery for everything, but people yeah. are using it as a crutch and they're using it for everything. Or uh, they need like one itty bitty little thing. So they import the entire jQuery, which I don't even think is a big deal because everyone's browser has Jake. As long as you're using it from a, one of the CDNs, your browser's yeah. already got it cached. Well, I mean, it's not just that. I mean, it's, it's not just performance. It's just whether or not it's a crutch, whether or not, you know, new developers are learning real skills because they're going through school, learning how to build things with these frameworks. Well, I do think it's ridiculous that people know jQuery and they don't know JavaScript. And I don't know how that's possible. I don't understand that. <laughs> but apparently that's the case. But see, I'm kind of one of those, those people that likes to know how things work in the background. And unfortunately, that's to my detriment because I'd like to use a framework to save me time. But then I want to read and learn everything about that because I feel like I need to know. And I probably could have just wrote the features from scratch into my application. Using a framework in no way alleviates you from the need of needing of, of needing to know uh, the language. No, it's, I mean, it should be a time saver for you, but, but think again, of, but think about how most people build web apps. They're, they're copying and pasting bits of jQuery and apex. <laughs> That's a huge generalization. Not everyone's doing that, but uh, no, no. I, what did I say? I meant to say like 80%. 80%. That's why 80%. I mean, how, that's why healthcare.gov <laughs> that's was built. That's a huge number. That's why healthcare.gov was built. And, they spent what was it half a half a billion dollars on that? I, I don't think I don't think that site is representative of our technology by capabilities the way, as by a the country. Way, they, they fired. I don't know if you heard this, but Health and Human Services fired CGI, the company that built it. Yep, and they went to Accenture, and it, they went to Accenture exactly. And I saw an interview today with this. Um, this there's this some guy who's like a security expert, but they were asking him about his opinion on you know how Accenture would do, and from from a security perspective. And he said it's a bad idea because he's reviewed lots of websites that Accenture has built and it's widespread, poor coding, poor practices, and poor security. Well, I mean, they're a huge company that hires a lot of different levels of developers. And, and lots prob- of entry-level. They hire yep. lots of entry-level entry level developers and bill them out at $300 an hour. Yep, because it's all about that bottom line. Yep. and As opposed to, to smaller <laughs> boutique guys like me and you. <laughs> and our colleagues, you know, that really care about this stuff. Yeah. But uh, Accenture is getting 91 million to fix. They have a supposedly a year to fix healthcare. I don't know what fix means. I mean, a lot of it's already been fixed. I think there's a lot of backend stuff that's probably still problematic, but anyway, this guy was saying that there's, they can't even do it in a year. There's just, they're not going to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It might be worth just building from scratch. I don't know. Some things are harder to pull apart than, than they are just to rebuild them the right you way. Know, it's it's a government web app, so I'm sure they will just keep patching it and hacking it and and until it works. That's the way it was built. I, I remember after shortly after it launched, I went and looked. I just did a view source and looked at some of the front end code, and it was it was hilariously bad. It was terrible. It's it's amazing that people. I mean, it's just the type of people we were talking about. They probably it looked like they just cut and paste snippets of and and like there was there were there was so much like just even just like JavaScript in the page. There weren't even like separate JavaScript files. I mean, there were, but in addition to that, there's just JavaScript littered everywhere throughout the markup, and you can tell it's just copy and pasted like pieces of jQuery and stuff. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> uh, but that's the way. I mean, again, that's again, that's I think. That's the way most stuff gets built. It's just not that much of a surprise. Uh, I, I prefer yeah. to think that the other happens. It's just when we're talking enterprise and price points or large scale, for some reason, 
profits get in the way of doing something right. No, that's just the way most apps are built. I've seen enough source code to know that. And that apps are built by copying and pasting? Uh, n- not necessarily all copy and paste, but that type of thing. Just very low quality, very by underskilled people and just extremely low. Well, is it um, that you're seeing kind of the output of some kind of framework or CMS or something that's kind of making it look that way? No, I'm talking about applications I've seen built. Okay. Source code I've reviewed in my lifetime. And what a uh, life. Yep. <laughs> for what, for whatever it's worth. <laughs> did you hear about full force, which cracks me up full force? I did. I need a reminder though. What was that again? It reminds me of something I'd have after I like eat too bit too much at dinner or something. Yeah. I heard uh, about it and I, I don't think it impacted me enough to remember what it was about. No, because it's for, it's for Accenture. <laughs> it's exactly what it's for. It's, uh, so they're, you know, every year now, just like, so what we were saying earlier, um, about, uh, uh, you were saying something about every, like every year they're changing something and it reminded me of actually commission programs. Cause like every year, um, companies like re shake up their commission programs so they can, so the company makes more money. What were we just talking about along those same lines earlier? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But so Salesforce and you know, they're they, what this the annual thing they do now, it seems like they've completely, well, I don't know. I think some of it's the same, but they, they've, you know, they've changed their partnership program. Oh, we were and, talking about training. Is that, isn't that it? The training programs they keep changing every year? Certifications. I don't know. No, there was something, it was tonight, but anyway. Oh, okay. Well, um, never mind. Let's see. So Continue. it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's to highlight their top innovators from their partner community whose track records demonstrate a unique ability to offer differentiated solutions alongside the knowledge and expertise to deliver our shared vision. By recognizing these partners' strongest capabilities, our customers can be confident by hiring Accenture and all of their low-skilled people you're paying $300 for that we jointly offer the best foundation for leveraging the cloud to accelerate their unparalleled success. There are some, uh, and they're not as big as Accenture, but I do think there's some partners that I have a lot, and some of the bigger partners I have a lot more respect for than people like Accenture. Um, I, that's not a world I want to live in. I, oh, I've no, pretty much decided I don't really like enterprise. There's a lot of things I don't like about enterprise. It's inefficiencies, the inability to make decisions, the risk aversion to everything. I just The CYA just is throughout everything. Yeah, Everyone's so CYA. This, this just says, here's our enterprise implementation partners because they can do everything you need to yes. implement this. Here are the ones that have enough capital in the bank to go out and actually hire a thousand lowest skilled people and bill them to you for $300 an hour. Yeah. They're big <laughs> enough to do that. You can take your huge project to them and they will uh, end up taking twice as long and three times the budget to do it, but they will eventually will get it done. Yeah. So, so aside from a century, who do you think qualifies this? You think uh, Blue Wolf, maybe a Stadia, or whoever they are now, maybe. I don't know if a Stadia would. Um, so I would think. I'm just guessing. Um, Aperio, what are the cl- the cloud Sherpas? I guess. Um, they're pretty big. I think. Um, Blue Wolf probably would. I don't know. <clears throat> Full force, John. Full force. Well, look, so there's, full force. there's, it two, sounds like- there's two, there's two parts to it. There's the certified full force solution and then the master partner. I'm not sure what that means. I don't either. It's, um, well, okay. 
the master partner, uh, they're a Cloud Alliance partner holding silver or above that satisfies Salesforce master program criteria and has successfully passed the program application and review process. Um, the solution um, is they've uh, built an industry solution so you have to have like built some product or, or some vertical, some vertical product or solution or something. Mm. Yeah. So I guess if your solution, you have some vertical product you develop, but if you're master partner, you've implemented across the entire spectrum of Salesforce. Is that a good summarization? Yeah. Oh, and the principal criterion of is absolute customer success. Absolute customer success. I like well, that. In that case, no one's qualified because everyone who's going to be eligible, the candidates for that program. Um, of course, though, um, when you <laughs> when you when you're operating on that scale, even though you fail miserably and it's an absolute mess and there's an incredible amount of waste, everyone's going to rate five stars because, of course, the person that put their career on the line hiring you to do this and and bringing you in for some multi million dollar project is going to. They're going to try, they're going to release press releases talking about what a success it was and how it's decreased their call times and increased their profits and increased customer satisfaction. Um, and they're going to rate you five stars because it was their project. <laughs> this is how it's enterprise, so cynical this is how, no, this is, I've seen this for 15 years now. This is how enterprise works. Yeah. Well, it's not a world I have to worry about right now. I, I try to stay away from that. I enjoy small to midsize. I think, I think I find a happy home there. At least in terms of the projects I do for Salesforce. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can you can deliver so much more value on the on the small and midsized projects. Yeah. So, speaking of which, what kind of projects do you like? Do you like prefer long term, six month long projects, doing something big? Or do you prefer kind of, you know, short snippets, you know, two weeks, a month, and kind of just pounding out a bunch of different solutions? I mean, I think there's things I like about both. But I just have to say that overall, I like, I prefer the longer term projects. Um, but still for small customers, though. But I do prefer longer term projects. Because I can, it's something I'm working on full time. I don't have to, I'm not worrying about scheduling calls for all types of different clients all the time and lining up work and scheduling work. And, you know, I like just being able to focus on knowing what my work is and doing a really good job at it. Yeah. See, I kind of have a kind of an opposite opinion on that. I, I think I prefer the smaller ones. I think what you said is true though. It there does involve a lot more meetings, a lot more kind of pre-sales upfront work, just that constant cycle of getting a project done and trying to get the next one lined up. But I feel like when I'm in a long, long-term project, I feel like I'm an employee at that point. You know, I have a set schedule. I have to be available on their hours for any calls or anything they may have, no matter how last minute sporadic. And I just, I feel like my time is not my own and it kind of defeats the purpose of me being independent. That I might as well just sign on with one of these partners and just, you know, collect a salary. Well, I think, I don't think there's any such thing as independence really. I mean, Oh, it may be an illusion, but I I will enjoy my little world of illusion. Yeah, I mean, it's to like, some degree, I feel I have some sense of de- independence in that I can control my schedule. I can control my hours a little bit more than I say, than I than I feel I would if I was on a long term project. You with your smaller projects, have much less control of your schedule than I do with my big project. How do you think? What do you think of that assertion? <laughs> <Bull>. <laughs> uh, who's the one that's always having to reschedule and miss uh, things and stuff? 
<clears throat> that's true. That's because I'm trying to make Your some money. Your schedule is way rougher than mine. I know. I just. And you, I mean, you can't, you can't, you know, if someone wants a pre-sales call to start, you know, right in the middle of your lunch, you had something planned. Well, too bad. You're going to, you know, you got to do it. It's pre-sales, man. You might get a deal out of it. So well, you have that, you feel like you have this pressure to like just do ridiculous stuff or, or to agree to start a new project because they need you to do it before you're finished with another one. That's just that, that constant, the constant I, pressure is just, it's not productive. It's not profitable. I don't know that. I don't know that I dislike that too much. I mean, yeah, there are times I have to kind of cancel on things or kind of work my schedule around something because of all that. But I, I find that keeps things interesting for me. I, I don't like working on the same thing over and over and going into maintenance mode or, or this humdrum daily thing. I, I get really bored with that quickly. And I've found that my type of personality and the things I like to do, I kind of need that challenge, that constant challenge, that kind of revolving door of something new. I just, but there's a little bit of a straw man though, because you know, the long-term projects that I've worked on, I mean, if they got to where they were humdrum or whatever, I would quit. The reason I stayed with them is because they were, you know, we had a lot of work to do and they were in every day, I'm, you know, pulling new use cases and coding new stuff. And it's always some, you know, it's always something new. We're going, we're driving this thing forward. Um, and ideally with a minimal amount of meetings and all that other kind of crap, I really like that. So did you ever feel kind of what I described as being your schedule's not your own? Do you ever feel like if they do no. a last minute call, you have to pretty much be there or you have to be available during their working hours? I mean, no, because we, we hardly ever had, we never had last minute calls. I mean, we had, we had daily scrums, <clears throat> um, you know, once every two or three week planning sessions that lasted a couple of hours. And that was about it. I mean, um, some of the other developers, I mean, we would just ping each other on Skype or, you know, every once in a while or throughout the day, if we need help on something, but no meetings. Hmm. Um, yeah, we, like I said, we did our planning every two or three weeks and we'd have, you know, a list of stories and for those next two or three weeks, you're just building, building out those stories. But this is for an application, right? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a big difference. I think what I'm referring to are implementation projects for enterprises that span months and, no one's trying to no, know we're having meetings about the same oh, thing over and over. Hell. That's meeting hell, sign off hell, cover your ass yeah. hell. And those are the things I budget hate. Budget hell, you know, expectation gap hell. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, the, the expectations around a project like that is just insane. I, I do, I do not enjoy them. I can't stand them. Every once in a while I take one thinking, oh, this might be okay. And every time I regret it. Boy, that's, that's a downer, man. Let's talk about something better. <laughs> So let's talk about passion. What are you passionate about? Did you, or, or here's sleep. a better question. Did sleep? Did you know you were going to be a developer at any point in your life or did it just kind of happen? I mean, there were times like, so when I first, my first programming was on an Atari XE. It was like a, it was actually a game console, but if you didn't put a cartridge in, um, it would boot up to right in the basic and it had a <laughs> keyboard. That was my first programming. Um, 10, 12 years old, something like that. I'm not sure, but, and I didn't know I was going to be a programmer, but I was, in, I was hooked then. And then, uh, of course in middle school and high school, I got PCs. Um, it kind of started there. I, but even then I don't know, I, I wanted to do, so I was, I got a, I mean, my bachelor's is in business. I was always and like, I quit two years into college to go work. Cause I was doing sales and marketing, making more money than I should have at that point in my life. <laughs> that was the, the dot com bubble. It was. 
but I, yeah. but I also got, um, fortunately like a two or three years into that, I was able to, um, we had kind of like a website initiative with it involved, um, building an e-commerce system and configurator for PCs and stuff. Um, and I, so I did all that, which got me back into programming f- from a professional perspective. And then I think then I knew that's what I wanted to do. Cause I, I mean, I was okay at some of the other stuff, but I just, um, I was definitely interested in programming. So, so I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I couldn't say that at early age, I knew I was going to be a programmer. I just, I knew I liked it, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have that much like vision or direction as far as what I wanted to do. Yeah, I think I have a similar story. I mean, I tinkered with things when I was younger, you know, Tandy's and you get that book and you could program a game or program it to make a sound or something. I never owned one, but I had like cousin or stepbrother or somebody that had one and I would mess with it. And then as I got older, I got a PC and started messing with it. Um, So I just kind of fell into it. It was not something that I thought I would be doing. But I thought it was interesting because I recently saw this... um, recording of a 99U conference. Um, and and so it was hosted by, or at least the conference was being delivered by Cal Newport, or at least the, the session. And it's a, they brought him in because of his recent book, which is follow your passion, you know, and then it, it's basically his argument is following the advice of following your passion is a bad advice. Hmm. And so I thought, I thought that might be kind of fun to kind of listen to what kind of, he kind of said take a snippet of that and then, and then talk about that. Okay. These are those two clips. Okay. I th- yeah. think I have these written in the right order, but let me know if I don't. Yep. So for the first big idea to help me illustrate this idea, I wanted to use the late Steve Jobs as my example. In particular, I wanted to talk about the summer of 2005. And this is when Steve Jobs took the stage at Stanford Stadium. And he was there to deliver the commencement address to to Stanford's graduating class. So this was a talk that very quickly went viral. I think it has something like six million views or counting on YouTube. Uh, It's now seen as an iconic talk. It's a famous talk. Many of you in this audience have probably seen it. So you know that in this address, Jobs made a lot of really interesting points. But if you go back and look at the traditional media and the social media reactions that immediately followed this speech, it becomes clear that there was one point in particular that people got really excited about. And that's when he said about a third of the way through the talk, the following. Yes, pause it there. So the way this went is he actually didn't actually read what he had on the screen. So, but what was on the screen was a quote that said, you've got to find what you love. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. Mm. So that was kind of a quote. And, and so it kind of continues on. I'll let it kind of play through and we'll talk about it. Okay. Again, there's different ways to interpret what Jobs actually meant by this, but if you go back to the traditional media and the social media reactions that surrounded the talk, a clear consensus emerges. People are pretty sure they understand what Jobs meant to say. And in particular, we see this phrase show up often in those summaries. All right, you can pause it there. And so, again, he kind of flashed a a slide on the screen, and, and what it says is, it's the quote, you've got to find what you love. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking and don't settle. And then it has an equal sign, which, which is their way of saying what he meant by saying this is follow your passion. So the reason I'm telling you this story is the fact that people got so excited about this one piece 
this one idea from the otherwise very long and, and sort of full of good idea speeches, the fact that they got so interested in this particular idea emphasizes something that I've found time and again when I've been researching this issue. And that's the fact that American culture is obsessed with this idea that the only way to end up happy in what you do for a living is to follow your passion. You'd be hard-pressed to find a career guide book, a career counselor, or a career advice blogger whose whole philosophy somewhere deep down is not based on this idea. But there's also a problem here. So the more I researched into this issue, the more I became convinced that in addition to being an astonishingly popular piece of advice, follow your passion is also an astonishingly bad piece of advice. I want to be clear about what I mean by that. All right, you can stop it there. And so, so what he ends up flashing on the screen is, is something he called Newport's Law, and that's kind of what they're laughing about. Okay. Um, but, but what it says is, is telling a person to follow their passion reduces the probability that they will end up passionate. And, and so it's kind of the, the crux of his argument that if you, if you continue to kind of focus on what you're passionate about, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll end up doing what you're passionate about. I guess a better way of saying it is that, you know, when you start out young, you don't really know what you're going to be doing. You don't really have a good idea of what you're passionate about. I mean, other people kind of introspectively look at your life when you're in high school or something and go, oh, hey, you're really good with computers. Why don't you do that? Or you're really good at drawing. Why don't you become an artist? You know, but are you really able to define what you're passionate about? Are you really able at that young of an age to define what you're going to do? I, you know, not very many people, I don't think, right? Yeah. But you do hear it all the time. You hear it. I mean, I have a nephew who's graduating. I mean, he's getting tons of advice everywhere on what he should be doing. He knows what he wants to do. Um, but I look back at my life and my career path and the way things came out for me. I mean, I, I came out of high school thinking I wanted to be a pediatrician. You know, I did two years vocational in high school where I rotated with doctors and, and the hospital, you know, learning about hospitals and medicine and, and anatomy. And I planned to go to school and start my path to becoming a doctor. I never knew that about you. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I did that. And, hmm. um, somewhere along the way, I, I, I ended up in computer sales at CompUSA and I did it so that I could go to school during the day and work at night. And back then, I don't know if you remember this, but back then all we had is we had terminals, we had a system to enter orders, but we didn't have a system that told us about specs or anything. And I worked in a mail order call center. And so all we had was brochures from vendors or printouts of the specs of systems. This is all pre-internet. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we basically had these desks full of binders and papers and things that we would kind of fumble through when a customer would ask us about the specs of a system. Yeah, binders full of women. Binders full of specs. Binders full <laughs> of PCs. That's it. My, my, my hopes for office are dashed now for that comment. <laughs> Yep. But that's what I had. But what I did is I took what limited computer skills I had at the time and I started building my own tools to solve that. I would cop I would take all those specs on paper and type them into to a program. And I would use that program so that I could search and call up a, the specs of a PC. And then I took it a step further and made it to where I could compare PCs because that was another question I got. Well, what's better between this one and this one? And then I got to the point where I'd print it out because ultimately they would want that comparison sent to them. John, what, what software did you write this program in? <laughs> Actually, I think I know. You're going to laugh. 
You're going to laugh. I think you're, so I think I'm not going to guess what you think I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess Microsoft Access. Oh, close. It was Excel. Was it oh, it was Excel. Okay. It was Excel. It started out with macros, and then I started creating my own custom VB macros from scratch. I then eventually ported it over to Access, but Excel was was the original version. You, oh, you ported to Access. That was the yeah. big upgrade. You got <laughs> that was the, the big upgrade. Yeah. Until you tried to run it on a network with a bunch of people hitting it, and then... Uh, yeah, and then it kind of... It didn't do well. <laughs> Man, yeah, you could... <laughs> I remember we, um, gosh, we brought in a, this one company I worked at and this was, this was before, I think this was kind of before I had gotten back into programming professionally. Um, they brought in this total jackass of a consultant. Um, he was like an it consultant and he convinced them that he could write this, I mean, the cup was called like storm track, but it was basically this program that was going to track the logistics of like our operations and everything. And he wrote this, and we paid him an insane amount of money. Um, even It would even sound like an insane amount of money nowadays, and this was like late 90s. And he wrote this terrible, terrible Microsoft Access program. <laughs> it was so bad. Did it use like pre-canned forms? Um, like you could use the form generator? Yes, it definitely. There were a lot of wizard-generated forms, yes. Yeah. It was. And then, and but, you know, so half of it was like wizard-generated, totally standard. The other half were gaudy total gaudy like green and yellow <laughs> completely custom forms that he just you know was it was exploring his art side you know with uh, nothing made any sense there was no rhyme or reason as to whether one screen had one look and another had a, the other look it was just <laughs> but i mean the functionality was what was terrible it was it was it was terrible Did but, it have like big blocky colored buttons and things oh yeah yeah, oh, and, yeah. And, and, that was you know, that was it back then that was like the just thing. like completely arbitrary like button size <laughs> I have to admit, even my little Excel thing had buttons because you could create buttons. And so I had oh, yeah. buttons on the page yeah. and they got, were, pretty, they, were they gigantic? That you could, you could press them with your, with your forehead. Yeah. I was, I was forward thinking. I was, I was a futurist. I was thinking about touch screens way back then, uh, Yeah, <laughs> but they, they were big and colorful. <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean to derail your story, but no, no, I, it's a, that's a great example because what happened is not only did I get noticed for that and everyone in the call center started using my tool and that was really exciting. I didn't get paid a dime for that, except I did get like a bonus, like what they called a president's award. And that was my first taste of taxes, believe it or not. But that was your entree into your actual programming job though, right? At the factory? It was once we moved to the, well, we actually moved into the custom support side of the factory and we built a program to help manage the customer support side. And I say we, because I got another friend of mine into it and we started doing the same thing. And we built this god awful access database, and we were young, excited, and dare I say, passionate about it because we were learning everything. We didn't know what a, what an object was. We were still learning object oriented programming. We didn't understand why you would put everything in a class and encapsulate it. it. Just didn't make sense to us, right? But we were we were doing it anyways, and we were learning. But we called this thing graphics, and it was like G R A F X X, of course, because <laughs> right. yeah. that's so unique. Yeah, and we were we were like. <laughs> We're so focused on the UI, you know, making things colorful, making things pop. We were pulling off pranks with it, which we shouldn't have been. We were like changing languages based on whoever's logged in. <laughs> we were doing some really stupid stuff, but we were having fun with it. I mean, there was, we weren't IT. You're literally trolling your users by having different practical <laughs> jokes based on who's logged in. Well, we worked really closely <laughs> with the guys that were using the tool and, and we weren't IT or anything. We were basically hit a hidden developer shop. Yeah, you were rogue. You were a rogue, little rogue think, shop back I there. I think my title was project project person or yeah. something, some low level project 
You wanted title. to be under the radar so that the corporate IT department did not find out. I think they would have shut you down. Yeah. I, I think, I think I didn't get an official developer title till Jesus, six or seven years after that, or maybe not, maybe four or five years after that, when I moved to Ohio. Yeah. I was like a, a minute, program in, analyst, uh, project manager. No, I was like a program analyst two or something or project <laughs> analyst two or something like that. Oh, that's because that's right. Cause they were kind of a big corporate company too. A lot of locations. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, yeah, graphics so. has a, has a, I wish I still had that program just so I could look back at it and laugh, but it was, it was funny. <laughs> it would be funny, man. I, I mean, I can't visual visualize some of the app. I know I, I, we, I wrote this one app. This is when Klein worked with me um, or the first time he worked with me and it was a customer. It was for our customer service department to like process our maze and stuff. And we wrote this, it was a web, it was a web-based app. And, but we, I did the front end to look, it looked just like, I guess it was Mac OS nine at the time. And it was when everything, they had like this white and black theme. And like when you, when you drop down a menu and it selected an item, like it would like do that, like kind of d- triple flash or whatever that was before it <laughs> actually, and, and I, and I just, I mimicked all that just for the fun of it. I didn't even have a Mac. Um, I remember those days too. Making <laughs> I mean, different I, OSs. <laughs> I don't know why I was spending time on that, but I would, dude. I would stay up so late. I would sometimes stay at work all night. We had a shower there. I just, I would stay there two or three days. Just, you know. I mean, I was. I don't even think I was twenty-one yet at the time. I was like twenty. Yeah. I remember, I remember my boss, and now I was like, if by that time, I, like that was kind of officially my job. But my boss would always say that he was getting like the twenty-year-old discount, which is was his excuse for paying me. Well, it was probably under market wages for that job, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, good times. Yeah, I remember those. I th- I, th- uh, I think one thing we obsessed over was, you know how you could, how when Windows came out with that kind of draggable um, kind of split screen? And when you dragged it, you got this kind of special line that was kind of checkered and transparent. Yeah. And if you hovered over something, it would like change the colors to kind of be this like inverse image. Mm. of the colors kind of like yeah. a negative yeah and we obsessed over that and we finally ended up finding the native api call and we we're doing this from vb oh, by yeah, the way vb5 right. what was that commander that you could to call into like the c libraries there was some vb command i don't you even could, remember but you, you had you had to define what the c signature was yeah and then you could call it in vb yeah and not only that the data types didn't match so longs did not match or or you know integers did not match so you, you ended up getting a lot of memory leaks and, and crashes and things if you didn't do it right um, and release things correctly. So it was, you got, it was a you challenge. Guys, you guys were some hardcore VB nerds, weren't you? We were. <laughs> we were doing it just to do simple things like get that, that, exact, oh, that exact mechanism that Windows was using just to create that drag splitter. Fortunately, it wasn't too long before I got into the Java and Unix and Internet world. The Internet saved me. From a terrible Microsoft path, <laughs> I had to do a lot of I did do a lot of Microsoft. I, you know, I kind of grew up on that classic ASP. That was my that's what I start first built websites in. Um, and our like our a lot of e commerce. It was probably well, the first time you and I met was building a, a customer support site. Yeah, was that what was that ASP? That was that was classic ASP too. I think wasn't it? I think you were the developer. I was the database guy. Yeah, you were the uh, system analyst too. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Uh, I was programming in a T-SQL. I was doing all the store procedures. That's right. Yeah, you're pretty good. You're way better at that than I was. I, I've never. I 
I all stored procedure languages are terrible. I don't want anything to do with them. They were a challenge. And when he got it to work, it felt really good. I mean, they're powerful and sometimes it's, it is the right tool for the job, but they're just the languages. I mean, T SQL, terrible language, P SQL, terrible language. They're terrible. In fact, as far as Apex goes, if you consider Apex just to be a database triggering language, way better than any of those. <laughs> <laughs> wow. A positive comment about yeah, Apex from yeah, Jeremy Ross. Yeah. I, we should note this. Hey man, I call, I call him as I see him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, we ready for the second part of this? Yeah, yeah, this is the last part of this uh, video. I thought, it, I thought it summed it up really well. All right. Today, so how do people end up loving what they do for a living? Well, we know that follow your passion sounds good, but it's too simplistic. The more common story is that they systematically build up a skill. Passion grows along with that skill. You can't have a good job until you're good at something. And in knowledge work, deep work, and the different rituals and habits that surround it is what's going to help you build up those skills and therefore build this working life that you really love. So to bring it back to where we started, if we look back to Steve Jobs, we see actually this is what he did. So he might have stumbled into Apple Computer, but once that opportunity was there, he was obsessive about building things that are actually of value to the world. And he, as he did this better and better, as he became more valuable to the world, he became more and more passionate about what he did for a living. So if I had to summarize this in one phrase, I'd say, if you want to love what you do, do what Steve Jobs did and not what he said. Thank you. All right. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, if you, if you do get what most people, what people would consider lucky and being very successful and it's something you're passionate about, then it's, I think it's easy to look back at that and think, oh, well, everyone should do what they're passionate about because I'm doing what I'm passionate about and it worked. Right. right. But you know, just cause a happened and then B happened doesn't mean that a caused B, right. Yeah. And I, th- no. I think part of it kind of ignores the fact that you weren't really lucky. You just kind of, you found something that you enjoyed and you, you became passionate about it. You became obsessive about it and you made a career out of it. It, it didn't happen the other way around. It wasn't something you were passionate about. And then you, you made money at it. I think it just, one of those things that you, it's those life lessons that you fa- fall into. Yeah. And, and maybe it's that, you know, f- find something that you're passionate about that also has some intersection with practical uh, usefulness and value so that you do actually have a reasonable shot at being successful at it. And in, in terms of you can make a career out of it, a living out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, I guess the ultimate, the ultimate lesson is you really don't know what you're going to end up being passionate about until you just go out there and do stuff, you know, don't be afraid to, to do something. I mean, if I was afraid to, to mess with a computer, afraid to type some code into some text editor and run it and see what happens. Cause I might blow up the machine. I wouldn't be where I'm at today. I wouldn't have found this passion that I have. So I think part of it is just kind of making luck happen for yourself, going out there and trying things and exploring things and doing stuff. Yeah, I guess that's like um, Salesforce administrators taking that self uh, Apex 101 and uh, starting to do some coding. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of, of examples out there of people who were admins and needed to do a trigger and got it to work and got really excited that they got it to work and went from there. Yep. Um, so this is actually ties right into an article that I'd forgotten about, but I just looked it up and found it and it was in CNET. It was Mark Benioff's teenage affair with the Macintosh. Did you see that? No, I don't think I've seen that. Oh, awesome. I'm glad you hadn't teenage seen it. Teenage affair. I like <laughs> yes. the title. So, uh, it, the, did he not date much? Is that the thing? 
He just, in fact, this was written by Mark. This is a, <laughs> no, I'm serious. This, he like uh guest wrote this. Um, you should find it and read it. Cause it's, it's interesting. It's, it's one of those things. I mean, I think he, I, I guess we all have this tendency, but it sounds like it's, he, he, he's looking back at at this past with a lot of, you know, romance and slightly, you know, inflated <laughs> memories of things. <laughs> but basically it's just talks about how, you know, his parents bought him like a lot of this didn't make sense. Like two insanely expensive, expensive Macs because you had to have two at the time in order to do, I think they were Macs. Maybe they were Apple, something or another. I don't know. They were definitely, I think they were Macs, but um, they bought him like two of these. Yeah. It was the Macintosh 68,000 development system. And it required two Macintoshes connected together. Um, once you wrote uh, on one Mac, you wrote the software and compiled it. And on the other, you debugged it. It was far from elegant, but as a developer, I was intrigued. So anyway, he got two Macs, which at the time, I mean, I bet those were, even in those dollars, like five grand each or two or three grand each. I don't know. Which yeah, that, nowadays is like 10 grand each. I mean, that, that, that was a pretty penny. It sounds like Mark had a pretty privileged childhood. I think he did, yeah. <laughs> um, but I talked about how uh, he, uh, something about he couldn't, he couldn't get, like the compilers to work or something didn't work. So he called up Apple, talked to like their developer relations. Turns out the guy he talks to at Apple is Guy Kawasaki. So he's like, you know, his name dropping. Is, he really is. <laughs> I know. It's just like, really? This is just half of the sounds. I don't know. Those are kind of good stories. I mean, cause back then you probably could just call up and, and get to, to someone yeah. who wrote the darn program or so, wrote the so system. He, so he calls up, talks to Guy and says, you know, I've been using, I've been waiting for months for you to send me this MDS software. You've been advertising and I still don't have it. And so he said, you know, guy gave him the long pitch on like how well the Mac was doing and he'd have the MDS in a few days. And, um, you know, he kept saying it's coming soon. It's coming soon. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, he told guy that he, he got it. He said, but then how can anyone be expected to write software without any documentation or even example? There's you know, no docs, no examples. And so, and guy said, well, why don't you come in and work for me as an intern? So he goes, you know, he worked, that's how, when that's when he worked at Apple. Ah. Uh, I guess that was in 1984. Um, guess he was in college. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah, that kind of leads into some of the other things that we talked about where he, I guess he said he wrote some of the first programs or something on those. And I guess he did oh, it he, as he an said intern. He wrote, he no, he wrote the first code for the Mac, the 68,000 machine or whatever. <laughs> well, uh, I guess interns back then did a lot more. He talks about how Steve Jobs was always around, of course, you know, looking at what the developers are doing. So, yeah. It reminded me of that, though, because, I mean, I guess, you know, Steve was, obviously, he was passionate about, I don't know how he got into programming, but, you know, he somehow convinced his parents to buy him two really expensive computers and started programming and immediately got hired by a guy, guy Kawasaki at Apple, where he always ran into Steve, and it was great, and... <laughs> It's interesting. So, it's, so very, you, it's very what, Mark Benioff like. What point did he end up making in it? Other than, or is it just kind of more of a, a story? What well, pretty much that you know when he was born, the silver spoon was in his mouth, and it just got better, you know, <laughs> every day after that. No, it sounds like he worked at it. He he started programming and teaching himself, or at least finding a good mentor. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he was a, definitely a self-starter and taught him. He's a, a self. I mean, he said something key in that, in that there was no documentation. And I, I think that's one of the things Salesforce does really well is they have plenty of documentation for you to get started with their stuff. Oh, they have a lot of documentation. 
It's not plenty though, because there are too many areas that are missing. Right. You know, you can't write a, you can't write a parser for the apex language because there's no spec for it. No, we're not talking that examples. level. I'm talking about being able to use and write. Well, how do you put a language out for people to use and don't have a spec for it? I mean, it's a proprietary language. <laughs> but I'm I'm having to use it though. Are you talking about you want like a command level spec? No, like like the the syntax spec or something. I mean, there's no B and F for it, so you you can't you can't write any tools for it. Which is why that all the tooling for force.com is terrible. Well, that's because the tooling doesn't exist until recently. And I haven't even messed with the tooling API to, to really know everything it, it can it, do, but it doesn't do that much as the problem. It didn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fix a well, lot of the, the problems. lack of documentation is because the lack of the feature that could be, but yeah, Salesforce has a lot of documentation, but in many cases, but in most cases for not, admins, for the right documentation, for developers trying to use and build visual force pages and all those kind of things. There's plenty of documentation and, and plenty, plenty of help from the community. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot. <laughs> I, I I just I I wouldn't use the word plenty because there's just areas where there's actually not enough. Well, the so, only point I'm trying to make is he seemed earlier on to see the value of having some documentation out there so that other people well, who want to do things can do them. Yeah, and so uh, you know what? Where I will agree is Salesforce has always been they've been very for whatever documentation they do have they they've been ve- they're always very open with it. They've never had a sign up wall or a paywall. I mean, I can remember trying to get. Uh, you know, stupid driver from Oracle or something, or, or even just some basic documentation or an ODBC driver. So, or you know, you can't get anything. Or Cisco, they're another. They're ter- all these enterprise companies are terrible. Because marketers that. ruin everything. You have to have you have to like have an active service contract before you can get in and do any of that crap. And Salesforce has always been incredibly open with that. All the documentation, as many developer accounts as you want, you know, basically full access to every feature of the system for zero cost. So. They, huh, you gotta, you gotta give them props for that. And I do. I mean, I think that's a part of their, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Market. <laughs> that was, that was another positive Mar- feedback from Jeremy Ross. Yeah. <laughs> Put it in the record books. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that's why one reason why they're so successful. I mean, dude, for the first like five years of Salesforce, it was terrible. I mean, it was not a great system at all. They, it was, it was hardly good enough for a five employee company but it was open and it was out there and it was available and you could test drive it. The API was a big thing. That's how we did everything. Part of it. Yeah. I remember those days. Yeah. I do too. No workflow, no visual force, no triggers, nothing. No, that's when I, I wrote like frames to hack the UI and add custom functionality to Salesforce. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days. And there's still use cases for that. (laughs) Yeah. So what'd you bring to drink, man? Um, I'm actually not drinking anything. I had a, uh, earlier this evening, I had a Matilda, which is a beer by, um, Goose Island. And I think they're in Chicago, but it's a, I, I like almost everything that Goose Island does. If you ever get a chance, um, you can get them in the stores around here, but Goose Island. Uh, yeah. Goose Island. Huh. They make a, they make a lot of beers and most of them are really good. But the, uh, the Matilda is a, Belgian style pale ale. Oh, I like those. Yeah, so it's it definitely has the pale ale aspect. You know, it's it's hoppy and stuff, but it's it's has that open open firm open air fermentation kind of twangs and spices of uh, of a Belgian. Although I think last restaurant we went to, I don't remember what it was. Was it Twin Peaks or some some place like that where I tried? I think it was a Belgian IPA or Belgian PA. Sorry, 
You remember what it was? I don't. That's kind of what I was pausing. I was trying to remember, but I remember not liking it too much. Um, I remember not liking any of the beers that were there. Yeah. And it could just be that they just didn't stock the good stuff, but yeah, I remember not liking it there, but I do. I have had others and I, I remember liking them. Yeah. What are you drinking? <laughs> so I have a story about mine. I, I like the office. You, so did you ever watch the office? The TV show, the TV show, which one? The Michael Scott ears. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, Oh, you mean which one British or us? Yeah. Yep. The us version. I tried to watch the British one and I couldn't. It's a different show. It what is. are you doing by the way? What? You're popping or squeaking something. <laughs> Sorry. I have a bottle in front of me of what I'm drinking. Oh, it's the cork. Huh? It's the cork. Yeah. yeah. I was popping it. So anyways, the, the story is that on the show in two different episodes, Michael Scott's character has a drink. And the drink is called a Michael Scotch. <laughs> and he, and he infamous, infamously said, tastes like Splenda or yeah. Tastes like Splenda gets you drunk like Scotch. Tastes like Splenda. Yeah. Cause what he is does it, is he doesn't drink Scotch. He puts like packets of Splenda in it to sweeten it. Gross. <laughs> so I thought I'm going to make one and find out what that's about. <laughs> it is gross, man. It is the grossest thing ever. <laughs> I want to try. I've never had Lagavulin scot- uh, scotch, but I want to try it because that's what uh, Ron Swanson drinks. <laughs> I'll have to try that. So anyways, <laughs> I, I did that as an experiment before our last lost episode and it was so gross. I couldn't drink it, but it was, this is also my first venture into scotches and I was surprised because I thought, because I drank so much whiskey, I would have an easy transition into scotch, but I'm finding no, it's a whole it's, different world, all different set of tastes. Um, so what I have is a, it's a, a Balvini. Oh, is it a story? Yeah. And this is a mm-hmm. Caribbean cast. So this is aged 14 years in a rum case, rum casks. And it, it's definitely got tremendous flavor profile. I mean, you get the vanilla and then you get all these aromatics and things that follow it. It actually took me, my first taste was gross. I will just say that now. It, it almost came, it gave me that kind of like stomach acid taste or smell to my mouth. And I just, I hated it. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of muscled through it because I know it's an acquired taste. And from there yeah. I started you know, with a little bit of ice and the water melting into it, it helped. And I, f- I find I really enjoy it, but it was definitely one of those things that you had to kind of get past. Yeah. And you're just going to have to train your palate on scotch. It's, it is a different world. And the, the thing about scotch that's for me is intimidating um, is that there are so many distilleries and, and each of them have, some of them have a, a, just like a, this whole menu of different scotches they make. Um, and there's the different styles. So like depending on where, you know, where it's made and whether it's peaty or smoky or earthy or, you know, they're using these different casks nowadays. Some use yep. sherry casks, some use bourbon casks, even rum um, like mine. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's a huge world, which again, is kind of intimidating because I, I feel I want to grasp and understand the whole of something. That's my personality. And right. it's, you know, at some point I just have to, you know, I don't know. I, Except the fact that it's not going to be that easy. I know. Well, it's definitely a pleasant surprise because, I, again, I thought it, I'll just, you know, I drink a lot of whiskey and I'll transition to this and it'll mm-hmm. be awesome. I, it would be cool to go to like a, a, like a scotch bar or something. Don't those exist? And do, just do like flights so you can just taste a little bit of lots of different ones. I'm disappointed that we don't have like pubs like they do in London or someplace like that where you, it's just like men. Gee, what's that pub? It's that London pub that we go to sometimes <laughs> pub London. What is it? Uh, it's a, 
Wait. Oh, yeah. It's a pub called the Londoner. No, that, <laughs> what are you talking about? That's, that's a sports bar. Come on. It, it's like halfway what between a pub and a sports bar. John, go to a pub in London and you tell me what that it's what kind of pub but it is. I watch a lot of British, British television. I've seen them. They have these like really nice chairs, leather chairs. Everyone's kind of laid back and laid back. It's a social thing. It's it's a it's a slow sipping thing. It's not this, you know, it's not that typical sports bar where you're, where you just hmm. drink downing gallons of beer and yelling at the screen. I'm talking about like those <laughs> kind of pubs. I love your straw man. <laughs> uh, okay. That's what I want. That kind of pub. Yeah. Maybe that's your passion. Go build a it's, damn it's pub. Almost, it's almost like on the verge of country clubish type thing where it's kind of this private area where you can sit back and relax and drink and, you know. Hmm. Maybe it depends on what neighborhood of London you're in. Sometimes I want to go where everybody knows my name. <laughs> Record coming out in June. Oh, okay. SoundCloud? <laughs> yeah, they're the only ones that'll publish me because yeah. I'll pay them too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, is that a wrap? That's a wrap. And good day, sir. Good day, sir.